Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I am Laura Robinson, and we are PhD students in New Testament studies at Duke University. Today we're talking about a section from A Gospel for a New People, Studies in Matthew by Graham Stanton, published in 1992. Specifically, we're going to talk about chapter 5, Synagogue and Church, which is concerned with the Gospel of Matthew's relationship to contemporary Judaism. Laura, what is Stanton arguing here? So what Stanton's article here is primarily concerned with is what, we're, what we call the parting of the ways. Uh, the parting of the ways is the question of how Christianity came to be a separate religion from Judaism, because when you think about it, that wasn't always true. Uh, Jesus was Jewish and all of his followers were Jewish. So how did it become that Christianity was primarily made up of non-Jewish worshipers and become a distinctive thing from Judaism? What Satan is arguing for in this section is how to put Matthew on the map in the question of the parting of the ways. Is Matthew a book written by Jews for Jews who may be disputing with other Jewish figures, but still consider themselves to be part of the synagogue? Or has Matthew's community broken away from the local synagogue and is basically now doing its own thing? Satan is going to heavily favor the second view, that Matthew's community, while Jewish and while steeped in Jewish tradition, has broken from the synagogue and is now functionally its own religion. This is a particularly interesting question for the Gospel of Matthew, because Matthew, over and against the other three synoptics and over against John, looks, to many readers, particularly Jewish. It's the only gospel that seems to uphold Torah observance. It's the only gospel that suggests Christians are still worshiping in the temple. It's a gospel that is concerned with interpretation of the Mosaic law. And more than any of the other gospels, it seems to be really concerned with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So the question that we're asking as scholars is, how did Matthew come to be such a Jewish gospel? Who is this for and what is influencing it? So Stan is going to outline four possible options for what kind of community uh, Matthew's gospel is written for. The first view is what we call the traditional view, that uh, Matthew was an apostle of Jesus himself and wrote for a Palestinian community of Jews. The second will be the intramural view, that is, Matthew still understands itself to be a Jewish group that is in conflict with other Jewish groups. The next is extramuros, uh, which means that Matthew's community has recently broken with the synagogue and is no longer worshiping alongside other Jews. And the fourth option is the Gentile extramuros. That is, Matthew is a Gentile Christian standing at some distance from conflicts with Jews and Jewish Christians who is only interested in Christianity's relationship to Judaism insofar as it's a historical or theological question. So no live, real conflict with neighboring Jewish communities. It's worth noting that Stanton is going to take option number three that we just outlined, but we're going to go through the views in order and discuss them. So the first view is the traditional view. This is the view that basically reigns supreme in Christian teaching from the earliest interpretations of Matthew like with Origen and Eusebius and continued basically unchallenged all the way to the 19th century with the rise of the historical critical movement. The traditional view is that Matthew is the disciple of Jesus, uh, particularly the one in the gospel who is listed as the former tax collector who becomes a disciple of Jesus. So, and then wrote for the church that he founded for a group of Jewish Christians who were living in the Palestinian era. So this would have been pre-70. The temple would have still been standing. This is, a very early, this is a very early traditional reading of the text. The idea that Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrew, Staten 
argues, based on work from Craig Keener, is probably actually a misreading of Papias that Eusebius and Origen are picking up on. Papias says that Matthew collected the sayings of the Lord and wrote them Hebraically. And based on work Keener has done, it looks like what he's actually saying is that Matthew wrote in a Hebraic or Jewish or Semitic style, not that he actually wrote in the Hebrew language. And Stanton thinks that the idea that Matthew actually wrote his whole gospel in Hebrew that Eusebius and Origen reports is based on a misreading of this tradition. Furthermore, it's worth noting that Papias doesn't actually support Matthean priority, but the idea that Matthew wrote first comes from the fact that Matthew is identified as one of the disciples of Jesus, whereas Mark is not. So it doesn't make much sense for Matthew to be copying out of Mark if you believe that. So church fathers came to believe that Matthew, the disciple, wrote first independently, and then Mark and Luke came along thereafter. In order to uphold the traditional view for what it's worth, you basically have to assume that Matthew was the first gospel, that he wrote as a disciple his own memoirs, and then the other gospel writers took over after that. Um, This is pretty untenable if you think, with most modern scholars, that actually Mark was the first gospel and that Matthew and Luke went on to use him. If you're interested in the arguments behind that, uh, go listen to our Streeter episode, where we lay out Streeter's influential case for Mark and Priority. It's also hard to make the case that Matthew is written in the pre-Temple era the whole way through. We'll get more into that as we go along. Um, It's worth articulating why exactly Mark and Priority undermines this view. Mark is an author who's writing in Greek who is writing clearly for a Gentile audience. He explains Jewish customs, he doesn't seem particularly familiar with Palestinian geography, and he's writing in, you know, fairly fairly decent Greek. To suppose that a disciple of Jesus would come along and pick up this document written by and for Gentiles and use that as the basis, copying word for word out of that, writing his recollections about Jesus from traveling with him on the basis of this Gentile document doesn't make any sense. The second view that we're going to discuss is the intramuros view, which is the idea that Matthew's community is a group of Jewish Christians who still see themselves to be, even though they believe in Jesus as the Messiah, thoroughly Jewish. They still go to synagogue, they still practice Jewish rituals, and they see themselves as struggling with the Pharisees for the definitive interpretations of what it means to be Jewish, but the struggle has not made them renounce or deny their Jewish heritage. So there's a number of key passages in the Gospel of Matthew that seem to suggest that this is still a very Jewish community that is reading and responding to this text. One great example of this is in Matthew 17, where Jesus discusses the temple tax with Peter. So in Matthew 17, the collectors of the temple tax come to Peter and ask whether or not Jesus pays the temple tax. And Peter says, yes, of course he does. Then, he, then Peter goes and asks Jesus, uh, do, do, do we pay the temple tax? And Jesus asks whether earthly kings collect taxes from their children or from their subjects? And Peter responds, from others, from their subjects, not the children. Jesus then says to him, then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and catch this fish that has a coin in it. Um, take that and give it to them for you and for me. All right? So Jesus on this intermeal view seems to instruct Christians that in order to avoid giving offense, they continue to pay this temple tax when they're worshiping in the temple. And this read alongside Jesus' command that when you were giving and uh, making an offering at the altar, you should go and reconcile yourself with your brother if you have any grudge, together seem to suggest that the Jewish Christians who are using Matthew's gospel or the community that lies behind the author of Matthew's gospel are still observing worship in the temple. 
obviously a central act of the Jewish faith. There's also a section in Mark where when Jesus is talking about what defiles, he says that it's not things that go into the body, but what come out of the body um, or what defile a person. And then Mark has this little aside where he says that by saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Matthew leaves this out, which seems to suggest that Matthew does not agree with Mark's uh, spin on this reading. Uh, Matthew does think foods that you eat make you unclean and that Torah and uh, Torah food laws still do matter. It's worth noting Matthew's procedure here. He's copying verbatim out of Mark. And then when he comes across this aside saying doing this makes all food clean, he drops that verse. And this is corroborated by other notes throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew 24, the part of the synoptic apocalypse, where Jesus is talking about the, you know, the coming into the world, he says, pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath, um, because you're going to have to flee. And this is a thing he's adding into Mark. So again, he's copying things out of Mark, but he adds in this prayer that you don't have to travel on the Sabbath, implying that the people for whom he's writing observe the Jewish Sabbath. So these two together, again, suggest that Matthew is a law-observant Jewish Christian. It's also important to notice that in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew defines uh, the hearers of the sermon, the, Christian, the Jewish Christians, uh, in contrast to Gentiles. When Jesus is speaking uh, unfavorably about people who greet only their neighbors or do good only to their friends, he says that even the Gentiles do that, which pretty clearly suggests that Matthew and his readers don't think of themselves as Gentiles. So what else would they think of themselves as? Seems like they, they think of themselves as Jews. So this is another pretty strong case for the intramural reading of, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. While we're in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' denial that he has come to abolish the law looks like he is responding to something. You don't say, I'm not coming to do this unless someone su- is suggesting that that is what you're doing. And authors like David Sim have argued that, that he's responding to Pauline Christianity here. Who, is, who has said that Jesus has abolished the law, well, that verbatim shows up in Ephesians, uh, which is a Pauline, either written by Paul or is a Pauline Christian document, that the, the, the same word here, a uh, form of luo, um, is used to describe what Jesus does to the law. The Sermon on the Mount goes on to say that anyone who teaches someone to break the least of these commandments should have a millstone tied to them and thrown in the sea, and that Christians' righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So, Taken together, we have a bunch of positive statements about, about law observance and a critique of someone who might suggest that, we, that Jesus abolishes the law. Option three, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this one because this is the view that Stanton himself upholds, is the extramuros shortly after the parting of the ways view. So this is the view that Matthew's Christians are Jewish Christians who have recently been separated or kicked out or left the Jewish synagogues. So they're still engaged in a debate over who is the true people of God, the true Israel, so to speak, but no longer identify themselves as Jews per se, and are still in close, probably personal contact and indeed conflict with the synagogues and neighbors who are claiming the same scriptures as their own and the same theological heritage. So one place where we really see this stand out is in Matthew's retelling of the parable of the tenants, which is also in Mark. Both of these gospels tell the story of a landowner who rents a vineyard to tenants, but the tenants uh, keep resisting giving him the harvest that he wants. Finally, the landowner sends his son. The tenants kill the son and throw him out. The landowner uh, brings down bloody revenge on them and destroys the tenants and gives it to new, new farmers. 
Um, so the way Mark ends the story, the way he sums up the moral of the story, is that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, hearers, and given to others. But Matthew makes this a lot more explicit, where he says that uh, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to an, a, another ethnikos, which is like a way of saying like nation or people. It seems to be a pretty good indication that what Matthew is getting at is that the kingdom of God has been taken away from Israel, it has been given to this new nation, new people. I don't want to quite say new Israel because this is going to be a theological move that becomes really important later in Christian history, but definitely away from the nation that originally had it. A new ethnikos implies there was an old ethnikos, which implies some distancing or othering of the Jewish people from the perspective of the author of Matthew. Another great example of this is the unmitigated, exhaustive critique of the scribes and Pharisees that runs through the whole gospel. Uh, Luke has, on occasion, Pharisees who play a more sympathetic role. Jesus sits down and eats with them. Uh, Some of them come to warn Jesus that Herod is going to have him killed. In Matthew, there's nothing like this. There are no nice Pharisees. Even John has uh, Nicodemus, who is this sympathetic uh, Jewish leader figure. There's nothing like this in Matthew. The Pharisees and the scribes are criticized the whole way through. If you play word association with Pharisees today, unfortunately, the word that comes to mind is hypocrites. But if you read the gospel, Luke never calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Mark calls the Pharisees hypocrites one time. It's the gospel of Matthew that beats this association to death, so to speak. Matthew calls the Pharisees hypocrites 12 times in his gospel. Furthermore, if we look at the way Matthew edits Mark's description of Pharisees and scribes, we see again an unmitigated hostility towards Jewish leaders. So Mark's sympathetic scribe in 1228 becomes a hostile Pharisee. In Mark, Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, becomes an anonymous official, and there's no mention of a synagogue playing any role here. So the point is, we have Mark and Luke giving a more nuanced picture of Matthew's relationship to Jewish leaders. I mean, there's clearly there's still some antagonism, uh, but it's more nuanced versus Matthew with, with this relentless assault on these groups, which culminates in the horrendous verse at the end of Matthew's gospel, where the Jews say, let his blood be on us and our children, um, which was, of course, terribly abused uh, by Nazi propaganda and has, has a tragic history in Christian anti-Semitism. Yeah, absolutely. Another really important thing for, that uh, props up the extramuros view is uh, the phrase, their synagogues. Uh, This is a phrase that shows up in Mark several times to describe the synagogues that Jesus speaks in. And it seems to just really be sort of a regional distinction there that Jesus goes through an area and teaches in their synagogues, which is basically a morally neutral term. Uh, In Matthew, this actually becomes a pretty weaponized term. And it's a term that Matthew is particularly inclined to use when he is describing Jewish persecution of Jewish Christians. When Jesus sends the missionaries out on their uh, mission to the Jewish communities, He warns that they will be flogged in their synagogues and uh, pursued from town to town, which seems to indicate that the the synagogues where they are encountering opposition are somehow very distinct from the communities in which the Jewish Christians themselves are meeting. On this same point, it's worth noting that Matthew refers to his own collective as an ecclesia, not a synagogue. And we do have Christian groups like the letter of James that refers to Christian meetings as synagogues, but Matthew does not. Matthew, they're ecclesia, which the origin of which is a little bit confusing, but probably has something to do with the communal meeting of Hellenistic town. 
In Matthew 12, 26, Jesus has a striking statement where he says something greater than the temple is here. And this is actually hard for us to hear in the right way if we're not familiar with Second Temple Judaism and Jewish texts. The temple is the center of the Jewish cult. The, the closest analogy would be walking into an evangelical church and saying, someone greater than Jesus is here. Um, this is the symbol. This is the heart of Jewish worship. This is where you go to interact with God, at least in pre-70 Jewish faith. I mean, there are some exceptions to this. Torah is starting to get a greater role. Pharisaism seems to be the democratization of Jewish practice. But the point is, Jesus claiming to be greater than the temple is a remarkable statement if, as we suggested earlier, Christians are still, in fact, worshiping at the temple. You have here an equivalence between the leader of your sect, Jesus, and the heart of the faith of the Israelites. Another great example of this is the uh, post-resurrection story at the end of Matthew. Matthew is the only gospel that reports a story about Pilate and some Jewish authorities teaming up to post guards at the tomb in order to ensure that a resurrection could not be fake and that Jesus's disciples will not try to pull something after his death to make people believe in Jesus's messiahship all over again. Um, the way the story ends up in Matthew is that after the resurrection, uh, the guards are terrified, they faint, Jesus walks off, and the authorities who, who put the guards there in the th first place bribe the guards and say that you're supposed to tell everybody that you fell asleep and that the disciples came and took the body. And then the story ends by saying that this story has circulated among the Jews to this day. So you have a very distancing term for the Jews there, which seems to suggest that this uh, text is quite a bit later than other parts in Matthew, that the Jews are this easily identifiable, very separate group that have their own rival story for how the resurrection happened. In response to the Christian Orthodox view that Jesus actually was resurrected, they tell a story that the disciples stole the body and faked the resurrection. And this view is associated with a specific ethnic group that the author of this passage clearly thinks he is not involved with at all. If the Jews have an alternative account of what happened to Jesus' body, that means the Jews aren't us, for Matthew. It's not dispositive. Paul seems to be flexible on this term himself. He at some point claims that we are the Jews, we are the true Israel, and at some times, you know, in Romans 2, for instance, um, and in some times he uses this to refer to others. This doesn't by itself settle the matter, but it's a, it does seem to be part of this larger picture. There's a particularly extreme anti-Pharisaic statement in uh, chapter 15, verse 13. The Pharisees are offended by the telling of this parable. And Jesus says to abandon them that they are blind guides and that any planting that is not planted by my heavenly father will be plucked up. So this seems to really rule out the possibility of any kind of fruitful discussion with the Pharisees at all, that they are not planted by the father, that they are doomed to being plucked up and destroyed, and that there's not really any point in trying to make amends or not offend them or reach across the aisle. This is a pretty strongly anti-Pharisaic statement in that not only is it negative towards them, but there's also no hope for redemption in them, for them at all. This seems to be a pretty strongly extramural statement. So if we take these two together, we have an interesting case of Matthew seeming to uphold Torah observance, uh, participating in, in worship at the same central location, the temple, at the same time as we have a marked hostility towards the people they would be worshiping with. And we have a distinction drawn between the synagogue and the ecclesia, um, and a distinction drawn 
between whoever we are, us, maybe this new ethnicos, um, and the Jews who have another story about Jesus' body. So you might be thinking with all this really strongly anti-Jewish leadership sentiment, is it possible that Matthew wasn't written by Jews or for Jews at all? Is it this a book that is uh, written by a later community that is mostly taken over by Gentiles and sees themselves as so different from the Jews that they can really say whatever they want about them? And there's just no relationship between this community and the Jewish world at all. So this is the fourth view, uh, the Gentile extramuros view. Our least favorite argument in favor of this view <laughs> is that the elevated polemic in Matthew seems to suggest that Jews are no longer in the room. Van Tilburg says that calling them evil people, hypocrites, murderers, and imposters is the only thing you can say at some historical distance from the group you're critiquing. Uh, you don't say that if you're actually still in dialogue with them. Well, so there's a lot you can say about this. Um, one is that saying very uncivil things is no guarantee that they are, in fact, not in the room with you. Uh, people say all kinds of very uncivil things about their neighbors or people that they are in very close contact with. A lot of people have seen in Matthew uh, the, the bitters, rivalry, and strife that characterizes a falling apart family. And I think this is a pretty good characterization of what's happening here. It's hard to explain why Matthew is so bitter at the Pharisaic leadership if this isn't somehow kind of personal to him. The very venom used by Matthew seems to indicate, I, th I think, that there's still a live debate going on. This isn't just a matter of historical interest. And Tilburg's logic could be used to argue that uh, there were no pagans left around when the Christian <laughs> apologists were writing because they call them all sorts of horrible things. Or, you know, inversely, that when the, Christian, when the pagans are saying that Christians, you know, murder babies and eat them and uh, sleep with their siblings and do sorts of things like that, that this must mean there are no pagans, there are no Christians around. Right, yeah, it, yeah. It's just silly. Read ancient rhetoric and you find out that people call each other terrible things. Or, you know, modern rhetoric. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or look at modern things. And I actually think that modern political discourse, you know, if not to really get into this, is actually really instructive here. Some people have gone so far as to say that the rejection of Israel is a primary theme in the gospel. Uh, we already talked about the, quote, blood libel text where the people of Jerusalem claim uh, responsibility for Jesus' blood on themselves. This seems to also reflect knowledge of the destruction of the temple and the idea that the temple was destroyed as punishment for the Jewish people rejecting Jesus as Messiah. And a lot of the parables do indicate this idea that Israel has rejected Jesus and Jesus has rejected Israel. Uh, the parable of the wedding banquet is another really good example of this, where uh, the king is ho hosting a wedding feast for his son and sends his servants, who are clearly coded to be prophets, out to invite people to the wedding. And the would-be wedding guests, um, rather than even just turning down the invitation, as they do in Luke, uh, kind of go crazy and beat up and kill the servants, in response to which the king comes and burns down their city. Which Their city. Yeah, <laughs> which seems to be a pretty obvious coded reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, and not a great description of what actually happens when people don't want to go to a wedding. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know, I'm getting married next year, maybe I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but... Uh... This being a central theme to part of the gospel is not incompatible with option three. Uh, right. This being a live argument with other Jews over the over competing claims to the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish theological tradition. So we think this can be accepted without rejecting uh, the extramuros near parting view. What I think is one of the most interesting arguments for this distanced view is the way that Pharisees and Sadducees are linked by Matthew's gospel 
when they were competing and really antagonistic schools in history from what we can tell from other sources like Josephus. So in Matthew 16, Jesus critiques the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this is like saying the political views of the Republicans and Democrats or the religious teachings of the Muslims and Hindus. Like These are competing schools for Second Temple Jewish groups and to refer to them collectively as their singular teaching um, is a bit baffling and may, for people who take this view, reflect some distance from the historical situation and so unfamiliarity with the actual content of their teachings. Stanton's response to this is, I think, actually really instructive here. Even if the Pharisees and Sadducees, historically speaking, didn't have that much in common, for Matthew's purposes, they have enough in common that the, distinguish- the, dis- the differences between them really don't matter. Uh, Matthew doesn't really care if they deny the uh, validity of the prophets or if they think that purity laws should be followed outside of the temple. That's not really what Matthew's worried in. What he's worried about is the fact that they deny that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that case, they have enough in common that Matthew can criticize them in the same stroke. So, Laura, one, two, three, or four? So I'm going to go with a soft three. I think that part of the reason why the data is so ambiguous here is because Matthew is, like all the Gospels, a composite text. We have traditions from different eras and different sits in Laban that seem to be pointing in different directions. I think the final product is pretty squarely uh, extramuros, but I don't think that is because, I, I don't think that is because the community has completely rejected its Jewish roots and has no more interest in that. Uh, the shape of the gospel is just too Jewish to think that this is truly a Gentile concoction the whole way down. To Laura's point, Matthew is incredibly conservative with the way he's handling Mark, more so than almost any other text we have from antiquity. Uh, so when there is good reason to think that he would repro- reproduce traditions that may be cut against the grain of his, of the, his own perspective in some places. Ian, one, two, three, or four? Cheating! Uh, I think Matthew is the sort of Christian that Lou Martin describes in his Law Observant Mission to the Gentiles. He is someone who recognizes a on-the-ground distinction between his group and Jews, and so is able to refer to them in that way, but still views himself as the true Judaism, who is taking now this mission to bring in the Gentiles into the faith of Israel. Um, and for Matthew, that means making them law-observant Jesus followers, making them, probably circumcising them, but certainly observing uh, Sabbath and food laws and things like that. Uh, go listen to our episode on Lou Martin to see what I'm talking about. This is, a refle- this is probably a reflection of the group that pre-existed Paul's mission and that Paul came into conflict with throughout his life. We, we do see a very different kind of Christianity on display in Matthew than we see in Paul. And because Matthew is more oblique about his audience than Paul is, because it's a narrative and not a letter, it can be a lot more challenging to tease out what exactly is happening with this audience vis-a-vis Judaism. So this is a great way to just see a community in flux and see the ways in which early Jewish Christians negotiated these competing aspects of their identity in in antiquity. To Laura's point, a comparison with the Gospel of John is really instructive. This hostility towards the scribes and the Pharisees' specific Jewish groups and practices in Matthew becomes the undifferentiated the Jews in the Gospel of John. So Jesus no longer has conflicts with certain Jews, but stands over and against the Jews in general. And 
Jesus makes these really strong claims about how people will no longer worship in the temple, talking with the Samaritan woman, in oppo- as opposed to Matthew, which seems to hold these two things together. Jesus is as important as the temple. I mean, something greater than the temple is here. But also Christians seem to continue to worship in the temple, as, you know, Acts even portrays Paul doing, um, still bringing offerings to the temple. So I think viewing these things in a spectrum, or over and against these later Gospels, is, is informative and supportive of, of Laura's point. Um, all right. Well, thank you for doing that one with me, Ian. That was a lot of fun. Yes, of course. Awesome. Leave us a review. It's easy. Open your podcast app, find our show, scroll down, hit five stars. More people will find us. Leave us a positive review, though. Yeah. You can only leave five-star reviews. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com. Thanks to Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song in the intro and outro music of the podcast. You should check them out. I've seen brighter stars than 